It's a harvest of sadness driven by coronavirus. Well, that's not a very cheery way to start the show, Des. Sorry. Me too. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with From you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, even during pandemics, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. And I think the world could use a blanket at this point, maybe a security (laughs) blanket. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, There have been some mind-blowing reports this week about millions of tons of food being dumped by American food producers. As Americans are, are, are beginning now to line up in Depression-era breadlines for food in many parts of the country, and while Donald Trump is spending his time fighting to make sure that his signature will, for the first time ever on uh, these things, uh, be on the stimulus, uh, stimulus relief checks of $1,200 that are being sent to the American people, and as uh, the Washington Post reports, adding days of delay before those checks arrive to people who desperately need them in the bargain because our man-baby president needs to put his signature on the checks. But some of those checks may not be arriving for weeks or even months to come, so it may not be that bad to have uh, Donald Trump's signatures on them uh, so people remember who to thank for the paltry amount and the inexcusable delay by the time they get those checks. But as to emerging problems in America's food supply in the world's richest and, well, formerly most capable country, we'll speak to a reporter who has been looking into the virtually unspeakable failures that are leaving many farmers and food producers high and dry. Hey, you farmers in swing states like Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa, are you really still going to be voting for this guy in November? Anyway, before we get there, and speaking of voting for this guy in in November, 
I promised a bunch of good news items uh, at the top of yesterday's show, and I only got to the ones relating to uh, Wisconsin's shameful election last week, wherein the good guys actually won one for a change in the Badger State, including a key election to the state Supreme Court after tolerating hours-long lines to cast a vote last week in the middle of a pandemic because Republicans in the state legislature and on the state Supreme Court, and yes, at the U.S. Supreme Court, all forced voters to vote at the polls in the middle of a pandemic rather than allow the state to either postpone the election, as more than a dozen other states have done, or uh, to run an all-vote-by-mail election. So the good news is the results of what came out of that election, as we covered yesterday with John Nichols, Wisconsin's uh, native son. But there was and is some more good news to get you caught up (laughs) on when it comes to our nation's elections. Uh, Well, it's the good news here at the top, Des. It's going to get ugly thereafter. So I'm just giving (laughs) you an update, giving you a warning in advance. All All right. right. Well, I'll still take the good news. All right. Here comes the good news. With uh, more than 20 states still needing to run primaries, all 50 states got to figure out how to run an election this November, despite the happy talk from the White House that, oh, everything's going to be fine as of May, open for business it is wildly un- unlikely that we're actually going to be out of this mess by November, much less these upcoming primaries in about 20 states. But here is some good news. You're welcome. Wisconsin is not the only state to celebrate uh, uh, some small D Democratic victories this week. Virginia's Democratic Governor Ralph Northam announced on Sunday that he has signed new legislation to expand access to voting in the Commonwealth. And there is a lot of long overdue good stuff now coming to Virginia, much of which is made possible due to the recent court ordered ungerrymandering of Virginia's statehouse. Among the measures signed by the Democratic governor on Sunday that will have the force of law this November, Virginia already held its uh, presidential primary on, on Super Tuesday, March 3rd, as I recall. So this these will be for upcoming elections in November. Early and absentee voting will now be allowed 45 days before an election without a stated excuse. The Commonwealth up until now had required voters who want to vote absentee to provide the state with a reason from an approved list of reasons why they are unable to vote on Election Day. Now, any reason you want to get an absentee ballot. You are allowed to. Good, because you're an adult and you don't you shouldn't have to have a note from your doctor or your dad <laughs> yes, to say well, that it's OK. The uh, bill repeals the state's photo ID voting restrictions. That's very good news for a bunch of voters. So voters will no longer now uh, be required to show a very specific type of photo ID before they are allowed to vote. Here's one. Election Day will now be a state holiday and will guarantee each individual has the opportunity and the time to vote. Uh, What makes this particularly good is that the new legislation repeals the current Lee Jackson Day holiday. Yes, a holiday established about 100 years ago to honor Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. People who attacked 
the Union who attacked the United States. They've enjoyed a holiday all of these years while uh, voters have not been able to vote on Election Day because they have to go to work and they're not allowed to get an absentee ballot and etc. So we've done away with that. Now Election Day will be a holiday. I, I do have some concerns about making Election Day a holiday because I have some concerns that people will just use it as a long weekend to get out of town. I'd prefer an election day holiday if they moved it if they moved election day to a Wednesday, making it less likely that people would leave town. Nonetheless, I'm just happy they got rid of Lee Jackson Day and uh, making it a holiday hopefully will allow more people to vote. The bill also implements automatic voter registration for people accessing services at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Moreover, the legislation expands absentee voting timelines to ensure access to the polls and extends in-person polling hours from uh, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. So it'll stay a little bit open a, a little bit later on Election Day. All the measures passed earlier this year in the Democratic-controlled legislature after Democrats won control of both the state Senate and the House of Delegates in the 2019 election thanks to the ungerrymandering of Virginia. And so, yeah, voting does matter. Elections do matter, even when it comes to voting and elections. If you vote in elections, it makes it easier to vote in future elections. And it also underscores the importance of your state legislature in determining these kinds of rights that you get to have on the state level. Yeah, because this was a 2019 election, and and these off-year elections often have low turnout, uh, especially when, you know, you're only talking about the state legislature as if who cares. Well, it does make a difference. It does make a difference for all of us. It does make a difference. What they end up doing will make a very direct difference to you. Governor Northam, upon signing the bill, said voting is a fundamental right, and these new laws strengthen our democracy by making it easier to cast a ballot, not harder. There's an idea. No matter who you are and or where you live in Virginia, your voice deserves to be heard. I'm proud to sign these bills into law. Thank you, Governor Northam of Virginia. So there's some good news. See, that I is told you. Thank you. That's all I got. Okay. No, no, there's there's some more. There's actually a little bit more, but it starts with some less than good news here, uh, though it does expose these uh, cretins for who they are. So North Carolina held its primary elections as well on March 3rd this year, Super Tuesday. Well, they are now looking ahead to how they may be able to hold their general election this fall, including the never more critical presidential election. And as we're beginning now to see from more and more Republicans, they are doing whatever they can to not make it easier and not make it safer for Americans to vote this November 3rd, particularly, you know, in, in these incredibly closely divided battleground states like Wisconsin and, yes, North Carolina. North Carolina's top Republican lawmaker, Senate leader Phil Berger, said recently he opposes recommendations made by the North Carolina Board of Elections to make it easier to vote by mail because of the coronavirus pandemic. Elections Executive Director, uh, the Board of Elections Executive Director Karen Brinson Bell has proposed a number of changes, including eliminating the requirement that mail ballots be signed by two witnesses or a notary. You have to get it signed by a notary, maybe? Uh, or unless you can come up with two witnesses, which wow. may not be all that difficult, except in the middle of a pandemic when people are sheltered at home. 
Or uh, she says we could change that to only requiring one witness. Pretty please. She says that would encourage social distancing. She's also proposed uh, making it easier for people to request mail ballots in the first place. In an interview with Charlotte and uh, North Carolina's uh, public radio station, WFAE, Phil Berger said he's concerned that if North Carolina loosens its law on mail voting, it could cause problems similar to the 9th Congressional District mail ballot scandal in 2018. He's worried about that. You know, in case you forgot, that's the one in which Republicans stole and changed absentee ballots resulting in uh, the, the results of a U.S. House election being nullified by the State Board of Elections. All of that thanks to a crooked Republican contractor and a crooked GOP candidate that knowingly hired him because he was crooked. After that, they changed the law to make it illegal for anyone to collect absentee ballots, even though it was already illegal to accept ballots that were not signed or sealed and to change votes on them. But the uh, Republican-controlled General Assembly passed the law in 2019 to tighten requirements on collecting mail ballot requests. Berger uh, had the temerity to tell WFAE, quote, I understand that some progressive liberal Democratic groups would like to roll that back and put us back to where we were. I'm afraid that's where the elections director would take us with her proposals. Take us back to a time when Republicans were getting caught stealing elections with absentee ballots. The state election director, Brinson Bell, did not endorse the most sweeping proposals by state Democrats. Uh, she also did not propose sending every registered voter a mail ballot. So you'll have to ask for one if these uh, changes are allowed. She said the state doesn't have enough time to prepare to handle so many ballots. She also recommended making Election Day a state holiday so it would be easier for the state to recruit volunteer poll workers. Most of the state's poll workers are elderly, which is the group most at risk to COVID-19. For some reason, I find it hard to believe that the Republican legislature in North Carolina will uh, agree to that request. Berger rejected the idea out of hand. So no Election Day in North Carolina, no holiday for Election Day. He said to say the Election Day itself is a state holiday, it seems to me contrary to what we've done up to this point. So if it's something we have not done before, it would definitely be contrary to what we have done up until this point. But isn't that pretty much true about any law that is passed by definition? Aren't we going to be doing something we haven't done before? I don't think he's thought that one through yet. <sighs> he said, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for people to vote on Saturdays <laughs> and other days of the week. By the way, leaving off Sundays off his list because Sunday is the day that many black churches have souls to the polls days to encourage voting after Sunday services. So, yeah, state like states like North Carolina have, you know, blocked voting on Sundays before Election Day. Anyway, we'll be covering a lot of this in the coming days and weeks, I suspect, uh, as I am now very concerned about what our elections could look like this November, much less upcoming primary elections in more than 20 states that are still on the calendar, if uh, largely postponed from their original dates. And as there is now a full-on fight to figure out how to continue the voter suppression 
that is pretty much one of the last remaining concrete values of the Republican Party. How are we going to continue to suppress the vote if we allow everyone to have a ballot via mail? What? So, you know, no matter how many people may literally die in the bargain, they're going to make it harder to vote if they possibly can. But that uh, those comments and that back and forth between the uh, head of the uh, state Senate in North Carolina and the state elections board, that was earlier this month, earlier in April. That could have been years ago at this point. Apparently, the Republican Party is now in favor of absentee ballots for all. I know you're looking at me strangely, yeah. but I have the evidence here. This, despite Donald Trump's recent claim that absentee voting is is all fraudulent, even though he himself voted absentee in Florida in the last election. Uh, but here's the evidence that uh, Republicans are apparently now all in with absentee voting. Uh, Mehdi Hassan uh, brought my attention to this. He's the uh, journalist at The Intercept in Al Jazeera. He tweeted out this very good news over the weekend. Quote, it's official. The RNC says mail-in ballots are secure. Good news, right? Told you. Yeah. So he included a couple of graphics of a new mailer that was sent out by the Republican National Committee to Republican voters in Pennsylvania, where late last year the Democratic governor signed a measure to allow no-excuse absentee voting for the first time in the Keystone State, which is especially welcome this year in a state where a grotesquely huge number of voters in some of the most Democratic-leaning parts of the state, like Philadelphia, are currently forced to vote at the polls on 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, which are now a vector for disease in the middle of a pandemic. Pennsylvania had its primary election scheduled for April 28, but uh, that they have now postponed them due to coronavirus uh, until June 2, when a lot of folks are still going to prefer to vote via much safer absentee ballots. So the mailer that Hassan posted, again, this is from the RNC, from the Republican National Committee, to Republican voters in Pennsylvania. It reads, Official Republican Party mail-in ballot application. Request your mail-in ballot today. All Pennsylvania voters are eligible to vote by mail, no matter the reason. Fill out and return the attached form and mail-in ballot, and a mail-in ballot for the primary election will be mailed to you. Make sure your vote counts, and then highlight it in a, in a yellow box, Voting by mail is an easy, convenient, and secure way to cast your ballot. And the word secure, by the way, is in bold. Return the attached official Republican Party mail-in ballot application to avoid lines, protect yourself from large crowds on Election Day, etc., etc. Your voice, your vote is your voice. Do not wait any longer. And just in case you're not uh, sure who was paying for this, who is sending out the message highlighted in yellow that voting by mail is secure, it is paid for by the Republican National Committee. So when you hear Republicans on Fox News, when you hear Donald Trump at the White House talking about uh, vote by mail, absentee ballot, it's not secure, it's, it's fraud. Well, now we have the evidence that the Republican National 
committee believes otherwise. So, you know, keep that in mind when you hear Trump lying about millions of fraudulent absentee ballots, that it's a big fraud for everyone apparently but him because he voted last time via absentee himself. In the RNC's words, it is easy, convenient, and secure. So see, good news, right? (laughs) We'll see. Of a sort. Of a sort. We'll do the best we can. Uh, And that's enough, then, of what will suffice as our good (laughs) news segment uh, for today. Some new economic numbers came out uh, on Wednesday, and they are even worse than expected, despite the ongoing happy talk from the White House and a president who pretends he's doing a damn thing about any of it. So apologies in advance. That's straight ahead. But stay with us anyway. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com donate And thank you. Yeah, it's not so funny today, is it? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As I uh, check my iPhone there during the break, uh, breaking news from Fox News. Trump says latest data suggests U.S. has passed the peak of coronavirus cases, teases new guidelines for reopening the economy. Hooray! It's over. Yeah, so the uh, corporate media, uh, thanks largely to Trump, and it's not just Fox News, but uh, thanks, of course, to Trump and, and a bunch of Republicans have been forwarding this fantasy that somehow we will be able to open the country for business in just a matter of weeks. May 1, maybe even earlier, Trump said. Well, medical and epidemiological experts suggest that is ridiculous, that it ain't going to happen unless we want to start unflattening the curve of infections and death that the uh, stay-at-home orders have so far resulted in, at least in locations where they are in place. So, yeah, not going to happen, at least not safely, until the virus is contained in some fashion, Uh, by a vaccine or with such low levels and full testing in place and contract contact tracing of the um, of the public that it would be safe to do so again. Now, it seems like we ought to be spending more time, you know, getting something like that in place and less time imagining that a magic wand will take care of all of this, because right now we are still in the early stages of learning how costly All of this is going to be to the economy with Wall Street, you know, largely whistling past the literal graveyard over the past couple of weeks, at least until the numbers uh, that came out today, all of them bad. And, um, well, Wall Street put the brakes on things after seeing some of this, although it's how they could be surprised by any of this. I'm I'm unclear. As AP reports, evidence of the coronavirus's devastating impact on the U.S. economy has been steadily emerging and the signs have grown ominous. Sales at stores and restaurants plunged in March by the largest monthly amount on record. The nation's industrial output fell by the largest amount since the end of World War II. 
and the outbreak keeps ravaging the global oil markets. And that was just Wednesday's news. And by the way, that was just news from March when we were only uh, much of the nation was only closed for half of that month. Jennifer Lee, a, an economist at BMO Capital, said, I've never seen anything like this. You don't want to look, but you know you have to. And that picture will likely worsen in the coming weeks and months. Retail sales, a primary driver of the U.S. economy, are almost surely suffering further during April because of business shutdowns, which will have been in effect for the entire month compared with just half of March, where these record numbers are coming from. So prepare for the worst. It's going to get worse in April. Economists have forecast that Thursday's weekly report on applications for unemployment benefits will once again show that millions of more Americans sought jobless aid last week. That on top of the record high, not even close to any other numbers we've ever seen, nearly 17 million who filed in the previous three weeks. Economists are now projecting a record-shattering 40% annual decline in U.S. economic output for the April to June quarter. This is all hammering oil prices, threatening the solvency of many oil drillers, putting many of their employees out of work. Global demand for oil will fall this year by the most ever due to the economic lockdowns around the world. Demand will drop an estimated 9.3 million barrels a day. That is the equivalent to a decade's worth of growth in the market. In the U.S., consumer spending drives more than two-thirds of the economy. Did you get that? U.S. consumer spending drives more than two-thirds of the economy. And it was one of the main pillars of support before the virus. Consumers are the job creators, not the parasitic corporations and executives who don't exist without consumers having money to spend. On Wednesday, the government said U.S. retail sales plummeted 8.7 percent in March. That is an unprecedented decline. The deterioration of sales uh, far outpaced the previous record decline of 3.9 percent. That was from the depths of the Great Recession in 2008. 3.9 it fell back then in the entire month of November in, in a half, uh, half, uh, half a month of March, it fell 8.7% retail sales. Spending may be falling at an even faster pace than those figures suggest, however. Wednesday's report did not include spending on services like hotels, airline tickets, or movie theaters, all of which are virtually shut down entirely. Also Wednesday, the U.S. reported that industrial production, which includes manufacturing, mines, utilities, posted its biggest drop since March of 1946. I told you this was not going to be fun. Builder confidence in the market for new single-family homes has fallen off a cliff. The uh, Neil Saunders, the managing director of Global Data Retail, a research firm, said a lot of a lot of the economy is driven by the consumer. The consumer is the linchpin. If the consumer takes a tumble, the rest of the economy falls down. Well, thank you, Mr. Saunders. Meanwhile, stockpiling of essentials is starting to wane, he said. That will also lower retail sales in April as more grocery stores are limiting the number of shoppers in their locations. 
So will that make food harder to obtain? Well, never mind the retail business numbers. A bunch of reports this week suggest some serious problems in our nation's food supply chain. That uh, with people now out of work, as these numbers suggest, uh, it's ridiculous, it seems to me, that we are having problems with the food supply, given the enormous amount of food available in this country. So enormous, in fact, that farmers and food producers are actually destroying millions of pounds of food instead of seeing it get to people who are now lining up in bread lines as record-shattering millions are now applying for unemployment benefits all at once. And they need to eat. That gobsmacking story, uh, which could be straight out of Dickens, but it's right here in America in 2020, is up next as we are joined by Alex Salmon of the American Prospect. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Even before the global coronavirus pandemic, the United Nations World Food Program was already feeding millions in Africa, mainly rural people due to a myriad of disasters. Many, if not most of them, climate crisis-related. Floods, drought, armed conflict, government failures, even plagues of locusts as we've been reporting for several weeks in our Green News reports. The pandemic has now added another layer of unspeakable hardship. In Sudan, restrictions to combat the virus are hampering aid workers from reaching some of the 9.2 million people in need, according to the U.N. The most severe drought in decades is already threatening about 45 million people with hunger across Africa, southern Africa where farmers are still recovering from two devastating cyclones that battered Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Malawi last year. Somalia, according to AP, one of the world's most fragile countries, is struggling to get food to people living in extremist-controlled areas. Two months ago, it declared a national emergency over an outbreak of desert locusts that devoured tens of thousands of acres of crops and pastures, leaving 20 million people with dire food shortages in East Africa. Now the locusts are back, by the way. More of them this time. In West Africa's Sahel region, nearly 30 million are struggling to find food. On top of these problems, the World Bank said the virus could create a severe food security crisis in Africa. You mean it wasn't severe already? 
For many Africans, the immediate concern is not the virus, it's surviving the lockdowns. In a pre-dawn raid in food-starved Zimbabwe, police enforcing a coronavirus lockdown confiscated and destroyed three tons of fresh fruit and vegetables by setting fire to it. Wielding batons, they scattered a group of rural farmers who had traveled overnight, breaking restrictions on movement to bring the precious produce to one of the country's busiest markets. The food burned as the farmers went home empty-handed, a stupefying moment for a country and a continent where food is in critically short supply. Ordinary Africans can't expect much from their governments, many of which are already laboring with huge debts and low foreign currency reserves. Falling global oil and mineral prices mean that Africa's exports are worth less now than they were before. So... What's our excuse here in America? The nation's food supply chain is showing signs of strain as increasing numbers of workers are falling ill with the coronavirus in meat processing plants, warehouses and grocery stores. The spread of the virus through the food and grocery industry is expected to cause disruptions in production and distribution of certain products like pork. Industry executives, labor unions, and analysts have been warning in recent days. The issues follow nearly a month of stockpiling of food and other essentials by panicked shoppers that have tested supply networks as never before, the New York Times reports. Industry leaders and observers acknowledge the shortages could increase, but they insist it is more of an inconvenience at this point than a major problem. People will have enough to eat. They just may not have the usual variety. The food supply remains robust, the industry experts say, with hundreds of millions of pounds of meat in cold storage. And there is no evidence that the coronavirus can be transmitted through food or its packaging, at least according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Still, the illnesses have the potential to cause shortages lasting Weeks for a few products, creating further anxiety for Americans already shaken by how difficult it can be to find high-demand staples like flour and eggs. And yet, at the same time, as millions in Africa are starving and shortages are emerging in the American food supply, American food producers are actually destroying millions and millions of pounds of food as breakdowns have emerged in our nation's supply chain. In the early days of the shutdown, Alex Salmon writes at the American Prospect this week, pictures circulated of barren shelves at supermarkets, much of it wrongfully blamed on binge purchasing. Now, however, the most objectionable food news comes in the form of crop dumping. All over the country, America's producers have begun destroying excess perishable crops that they cannot bring to market. In Wisconsin, dairy farmers are dumping thousands of gallons of unbought milk into manure ponds. In Florida, vegetable growers are plowing under millions of pounds of vegetables. According to a report in the Wall Street Journal, Mississippi-based Sanderson Farms has begun breaking and throwing out hundreds of thousands of chicken hatching eggs rather than raising the chicks for meat. An estimated 7% of all milk produced in the last week was dumped. 7%. That's good for 3.7 million gallons a day, according to Salmon, and that number is expected to rise. Even as I was not able to find any 1% milk on store shelves this past weekend. 
Those reports provide a stark contrast to sparsely populated grocery store shelves or severely strained food banks and miles-long bread lines that have become commonplace now throughout this country. 10,000 families recently, recently sought help from the San Antonio Food Bank, for example. As some have pointed out, it makes for a rather on-the-nose comparison to a 1930s Grapes of Wrath-era level of inequality and cruelty. What accounts for this massive logistic failure now artificially creating shortages, asks Salmon? Well, let's ask Alex Salmon himself. He is a staff writer for the American Prospect, as well as a contributor to Wired, The New Republic, and elsewhere. Mr. Salmon, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, you know, I've got a few uh, WTFs scribbled throughout your story today as I was reading it, Alex. So let's just start here. Uh, how can we be unnecessarily creating shortages, as you as you write, in our nation's food supply by destroying actual good food, even as bread lines are beginning to form in this country, much less with uh, severe and very real shortages uh, around the world? How can this be? What is going on here? Well, there are two parts to it, really. The first is more of a logistical issue, and the second one is uh, kind of an economic imperative. And the first one, I think, is, is really the, the main culprit in this situation, which is that we have two parallel but very separate food supply chains in this country. Mm -hmm. And the first is supplying grocery stores, right? So that's, you know, farmers selling to grocery stores, and, and that's where consumers buy food and take it home. And mm -hmm. um, the other track in our food production is is for restaurants, it's for schools, it's for these places where people are consuming food that isn't in the home. And those two tracks don't overlap at all. In fact, you know, they're, they're fiercely separated. Mm -hmm. And so when we started seeing these lockdowns because of the coronavirus, the places that were shut down first, obviously, and, and remain shut down almost nationwide are schools, their businesses, their restaurants, their food courts, mm -hmm. their malls, you know, all these places where this food would otherwise have gone, it's not going there anymore. And, you know, you might think, well, okay, no problem. We'll just send that food to food banks. We'll yes. send that food to grocery stores. Yes, uh, no problem. Why but, can't we do that? <laughs> yeah, it, well, it takes a lot of doing, uh, in fact. And it takes a lot of, you know, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of logistics. It mm -hmm. takes manpower. It takes money. It takes all these things. And it's very hard to set up on the fly. So, and, and this is where that kind of that second component comes in. Uh, American farmers are getting are getting whacked right now. Yep. I mean, it, demand is falling, prices are falling for you know commodities across the spectrum, whether they're perishables or non-perishables, you know, meat and milk and eggs and everything. Um, and so the idea of them then finding the money to put forward the expenditure to set up a new supply chain, a new delivery route mm -hmm. to get this food to a food bank to needy people, it's just not there. And you know, with all these people who are staying home from work. You know, we have shortages on kind of every level here in terms of manpower, in terms of capital. And, and for that reason, you're seeing, yeah, you're seeing this massive disconnect where there's a ton of demand on one side. Uh, you know, obviously, these food banks are, are strained beyond their wildest imaginations. Even that food bank in San Antonio that you mentioned uh, that got 10,000 families in one day, yeah. they were prepared for, for 6,000 families in, in one day, and that was, you know, record-setting, and they ended up with 10. So. You know, you have massive demand on one side, and then you have this excess of supply on the other side, but there's no way to bend those two things together at this point outside of 
federal government intervention, yes, yes. an important component of this, but has not shown up to the to the to the party to this point. So. Uh, yeah, I mean that of course seems to be the missing link. We've got too much food over here. We got not enough food over there. Yes, I do understand it is difficult to you know change the supply chain on a dime, but. Uh, the American military, we have heard, you know, as as the uh, debate in recent weeks over uh, personal protective equipment and ventilators, we've heard how great the uh, U.S. military is at logistics, that they can on a dime get all kinds of supplies everywhere. So, I mean, uh, you know, as I'm reading it this week, you, you mentioned in, in the story one of my biggest WTFs uh, that I wrote down here is that the vet federal government could step in, guarantee payments to farmers and provision for such a transfer uh, of food, but they have shown no interest in doing so. So the answer, well, what I write there is WTF, and I, I, I want to hear why you think this is not being done, but, you know, Americans this week, Alex, are finally beginning to get their paltry $1,200 checks from the you know, the Phase 3 Coronavirus Relief Measure, the CARES Act, supposedly to help pay for rent or medicine or, yes, food. It is not nearly enough, but at the same time, we're destroying tons of food. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but couldn't the government just step up, buy this food from farmers, giving them money to survive while distributing that food all over the country to people who need it so that those people can use their $1,200 for something else. I mean, we've got the U.S. military and their logistics to do it. This seems so simple and a win-win. I don't understand how anybody at the USDA or somewhere else isn't yelling and screaming for such a plan. Am I missing something? No, you're not. Nope, that's, that's exactly correct. It's, um, it's, it's the sort of policy that you know is both the most prudent and the most gracious both for farmers who mm-hmm. are who, who you know are are suffering incredible losses right now under the, the strain of incredibly difficult economic conditions, and for you know just the average American c- consumer uh, who who's also suffering you know massive unemployment, who's you know who are who are relying on food banks, relying on these things just to put put food on the table. So it's it's important. It's it's great policy across the board. It's the sort of thing that they're. The apparatus exists. Mm-hmm. The, the president exists. It, it could certainly be done. But again, it's one of these things where we've seen the president basically very, very uh, almost allergic to using the federal authority because the national authority uh, that, that is at his disposal to make these things right. We, we saw that with you know manufacturing the necessary mm-hmm. uh, medical supplies when yeah. it came to ventilators and, and the like. And, and again, you know, here's something he could conceivably do. Um, well within the capacity of, of the federal government and uh, and the military, as you mentioned, and and no, yeah, there's been no indication that they're going to pursue that, and that again, I think is a, is a pretty astounding political failure at a very basic level. Uh, especially given that we're talking about farmers, which Donald Trump loves to pretend he cares about, you know, and even by the way, even if uh, there's, and I don't know what it would be, but even if there was some problem uh, distributing this food in America. Hell, we could send it all to Africa and win some hearts and minds while, you know, keeping American uh, farmers in business. Uh, You know, it's not a a free gift. We're actually, you know, giving money to farmers to keep them from going out of business. Why not just buy all their food and send it around the world and, and, and be heroes? 
Uh, but you write that demand patterns are changing so abruptly in ways we've never seen before in just a matter of weeks. This is according to Mike Strantz, vice president of advocacy at the National Farmers Union, uh, that lenders... Uh, he's not sure if lenders are going to be willing to finance farmers this year with projected low prices and lower demand since we're now at spring and farmers are figuring out how to move forward. Isn't that also the very job of the federal government? I mean, they're they're guaranteeing loans and grants for all sorts of corporate industries. And uh, why weren't farmers uh, first on the list here in the in the CARES Act? It's, again, it's a great question, um, and, it, and it tells you a lot about the priorities of, of the federal government as it's uh, currently oriented. Um, the, the, the question of where farmers factor into this is, is a great one because the, obviously the multi-trillion dollar CARES Act has, has money provision for large corporations of, of every stripe. Mm-hmm. But for farmers, it's unclear exactly where they fit into that. Um, in fact, so for smaller farms, the, the money that's available through the Small Business Administration, the kind of the Paycheck Protection Program and mm-hmm. some of the small business bailout funds, historically the Small Business Administration has been functionally barred, uh, or farmers rather have been barred from accessing the Small Business Administration. Um, they've had to, had to go through the USDA to get their funding and financing. Mm-hmm. So you already have this strained relationship between farmers and the FDA, where it historically has, has, has not been able to offer them the help they need, and they've had to go through a different agency, well, now that the SBA has become one of the you know the pillars of American society, all of a sudden you know responsible for for staving off this global crisis, mm-hmm. uh, it's unclear if farmers are going to be able to go to the SBA for money. If they're going to have to continue to go through the USDA, um, the amount of money that's been provisioned for them is 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 paltry to say the least. Uh, and and yeah, and, and obviously they they weren't made a priority in this, and and so the question of you know, is there going to be financing? Is there going to be credit available to them to, to, to tide them through this period? Um, I I don't I haven't talked to anyone who knows the answer to that one way or the other or with any certainty, and that's obviously a very troubling sign uh, for the for farmers for the for the food uh, supply chain going forward. It's very troubling. It's also it's also somewhat puzzling. I mean, we know how Donald Trump is a failure in every regard, in every respect, whether it's this crisis or any others. But he has at least, you know, been giving lip service to caring uh, to caring about uh, farmers since so many of them are in, uh, you know, the swing states that he's interested in winning. It's it is kind of a mystery that he hasn't, uh, you know, himself put that first in all of this. You also report that labor is becoming a bit of a problem in the food industry. It seems there are uh, several layers of problems there. What's the uh, currently the most acute problem for uh, for farmers and food producers at this point? Well, I think the the kind of top of the fold issue right now has come in some of the meatpacking plants. Mm -hmm. And so there have been. Some of the major uh, uh, either pork packing plants or, or uh, beef packing plants around the country um, have turned out to be uh, hotspots for, for coronavirus transmission. And um, obviously, anyone who's familiar with the way those businesses work, it would come as no surprise. But um, there, there's one plant in particular, it's a Smithfield plant, mm-hmm. um, and that is responsible, I think, for 4% of the country's pork consumption mm-hmm. or pork products. So it's, it's a very significant node in the supply chain. And in a matter of days, we found out that first there were 80 confirmed cases yeah. of coronavirus, then there were hundreds, and, and, and now they've shut the plant down. Yep. And they're not the only ones. There's kind of this, this cascade of shutdowns um, in, in, in these plants. And, and again, obviously, it 
comes as no surprise given the close quarters and, and, and the working conditions and everything else. Um, but now they're already, you know, warning that, uh, you know, there's, they're going to be, there are going to be pork shortages in this country because of that. And there are going to be meat shortages because we just don't have the labor there working to, to process the stuff. And, you know, that, you know, makes fine sense in its face. And, um, I think again, it would surprise no one. The kind of second component to, to the labor issue is that for, for industries like, you know, uh, vegetables and perishables and stuff like that. Um, these these farms tend to rely pretty heavily on migrant labor and foreign labor, mm-hmm. and that means they're they're reliant on embassies, they're reliant on various uh, uh, various bureaucracies and administrative organs that are processing visas. They're uh, you know making sure that laborers can arrive at these sites and, and work through them. Well, all those places are closed for obvious reasons, and so mm-hmm. now we don't have access to that you know that that labor pool is is dwindling quickly and uh laborers on these farms are also getting sick obviously as, as people in all industries industries are and so there you know there's no there's no backup here there's no there are no laborers waiting in the wings to hop into the, to the fields and, and do the uh the hard labor necessary to pick these mm-hmm. these fruits and vegetables to get these things to, to market and so we have um you know a pretty a pretty systematic breakdown in the labor pool here which means that um, you know some of the, the the crop destruction that we mentioned earlier um, becomes necessary not only because there's no effort to go, not only because the prices are so low that they need to take extreme measures to keep them at, at an even reasonable level, mm-hmm. but also because there's no one there to even do the work because these people are afflicted by the disease and yep. and and um, and yeah, these kind of labor flows have have been foreclosed. So it's, yeah, it's hitting on on a lot of different levels. There. And and many of them, of course, of uh, uh, dubious uh, dubious status here in the U.S. Uh, so a lot of those folks are not necessarily getting even those twelve hundred dollars, much less health care if they do get sick. So they continue to work. They can continue to make others sick. Uh, Just like I was actually, uh, you had uh, described 80 cases of coronavirus at that Smithfield plant in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in your story that uh, published a a, a couple of days ago. And now that last number I saw was up to 350 workers at that plant in a state, South Dakota, where the Republican governor, Kristi Noem, has refused to implement a statewide stay-at-home order. So the other several thousands who work at that plant that is now shut down, well, I guess they are free to roam about the country at this point, as Southwest Airlines used to say, uh, infecting everyone else at the same time. Uh, Alex Salmon, you write, there is no concern that the U.S. will be unable to produce enough calories to feed its population, but there's plenty of reason to believe the worst is yet to come. Uh, how so? Uh, how does your uh, reporting find that this is going to get worse? And, and what w- might we expect in the days and months ahead at this point? Yeah, so there are a couple of uh, crucial developments here that, that kind of uh, project a pretty grim forecast going going forward. And um, the first is that obviously this is happening in, in the midst of, of planting season right now. So farmers are making decisions about what they're going to plant, how much they're going to plant. Mm-hmm. And those decisions are going to dictate the food supply for the year to come, more or less. Um, and so if you have farmers who are you know, facing uh, historic drops in demand, historic drops in prices, um, and they're unable or, or uncertain if they'll be able to get access to, to funding or credit to, to sustain them, there's going to be a lot, uh, a lot fewer acres planted. There's going to be uh, farmers going, you know, entering into bankruptcy. And so the kind of the jolt to the system, you know, are, is unlikely to be immediate. But a year from now, we can be looking at... Um, you know, diminished diminished supply at a pretty mm. at a pretty significant level, 
And and the reason that's a concern is not only for obvious, you know, first order reasons that mm-hmm. diminished supply is a concern, but that that could result in, in much higher prices, you know, just at a kind of very basic economic mm-hmm. uh, level. And if we're, you know, emerging from uh, a, a global recession where we're talking about forecasts of, of 30% unemployment potentially at, at some point later in the year, uh, the notion of having escalating food prices is certainly not something that's going to, to take the edge off of that. And, yeah. and that becomes a, a big concern uh, going forward. And uh, we've got just a minute or, uh, or two left here, Alex. Uh, there is then, of course, the political angle, the p- political side of all of this uh, with many of the states. Uh, you note that are most disrupted at this point by the broken food supply chain uh, being Florida, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, even Arizona. They're all swing states. Uh, but you report that neither Republicans or Democrats yet are seem to be making uh, these concerns a top issue in a presidential election year, for crying out loud. Uh, that seems surprising. Has that changed? Are you seeing any signs of that changing? It seems like someone's going to figure this out, whether it's Trump or Biden, I suspect. Uh, have have neither of them jumped into this mess, even since your uh, your story at The Prospect uh, published a day or two ago? Yeah, you would, you would think so, that someone would seize on this. And, and, um, and yeah, of course, you know, there's lots of talk of, of Trump being this master political strategist. Um, <laughs> not by me. And, yeah, not and, by and, me, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, not universal talk of, of him being a master political strategist, but uh-huh. in certain corners, there's there's some some awe about his his uh, you know his 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 political machinations and 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 yeah. So we have all these swing states that are that are most acutely uh, bearing the burden of, of this uh, situation. And and no, yeah, there there's been. There has been no one who is, has, has sprung into the void here and, and, and seized on this as a, as a political issue. Um, farmers in particular, I mean, going back in you know, the last two years, have, have sustained a number of, of, of extremely challenging uh, obstacles in, in terms of, you know, there, were, there was record flooding in the Midwest, because yeah. of, obviously because of climate change, and then the trade war was obviously uh, was something that, that farmers felt maybe above any other group and 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 so yeah so this is a group that's been kind of battered back and forth by a bunch of these decisions both both from the trump administration um in the last handful of years and from the climate and and yeah no there there hasn't really been sort of uh fine-tuned political message to this people saying that that they're going to be that someone's looking out for them and i mm-hmm. think that's a that's a big issue that's obviously a failure of of on the republican side it's i think it's a failure on the democratic side as well yeah. and it's something that if I were Joe Biden, yeah, I, I certainly would seize upon, and and I think you know the the dividends this could pay politically uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be discounted because a lot of these uh, a lot of these farmers are people who ended up being Obama to Trump voters. They're people mm-hmm. who felt like the Democratic Party sold them out to big agriculture, and before that felt like the Republican Party sold them out to big ag. So you know these are people that in swing states could play an outsized role in the outcome of, of the presidential election in November and. To this point, I've seen nothing that that uh, indicates that that realization has uh, has landed upon the desks of, of the strategists for either party at any level. That's kind of incredible. Uh, I, I suspect that's got to change. Uh, paging Joe Biden, wake up, sir. Uh, finally, uh, Alex, uh, for for voters themselves, and of course farmers are voters as well. But I mean, in general, for consumers. Uh, food consumers slash voters, is this expected to have an impact by 
uh, by this November, especially if there are food shortages? I mean, uh, while farmers and food producers are are feeling a crunch right now, is this something that may really hit voters themselves in uh, in big numbers by November? Or are there just still too many known unknowns between now and then? It's hard to know the scale of it, I think. Um, and I and I wouldn't want to put down a guess too firm a guess here and and uh, and lead anyone astray. But I think that there are there are reasons to believe that that you know this could be a lasting issue and one that escalates. I think um, looking I, the one thing that I think is important to look at is is where the import market is is, is at. The kind mm-hmm. of obviously food is a very global system, and. If you look internationally right now, the major ports in the Philippines, in India, in uh, in Nigeria, in Honduras, and Guatemala, all over the world, where you know a lot of these staple crops uh, are t- tend to flow through, they're all shut down, um, and they are likely to be shut down for quite a while. And that means that if there are shortages here, if there are gaps in supply, well, we can't really look to the international market to to import the difference. Uh, which means that the margin for error is, is much slimmer than it might otherwise be. In fact, the only country that has its ports running at, at full steam is is Brazil, um, who obviously is is a, is a country whose uh, formal position is, is denying the coronavirus as a as as a pandemic yeah. uh, outright. So, um, yeah. So, so is it, will, what will that look like in November? I'm I'm not sure. Um, I would imagine that there are going to be uh, disruptions that kind of continue to to rankle us well through that period and probably even into 2021 um and that will you know will show up on the shelves or uh of grocery stores and and the like and i think that i think it could play i think it very much could play a a role in this uh the degree to which it will uh influence voters or or um i couldn't tell you but um i think it will certainly play a factor and once again, as you're uh, describing that, I'm thinking, uh, in this case, paging the U.S. military. They can move stuff around. I know it's not nearly as much fun as killing people, but hey, feeding people is good, too. And we could uh, we got a lot of food uh, just getting it to the right places, whether it's in this country or any other, seems to me to be paramount and uh, only increasingly so as uh, as the years move as the year moves forward. Alexander Salmon, he is a staff writer at the American Prospect. You can find his story on this. Coronavirus has broken America's food supply at prospect.org. You can follow him on the Twitters at Alex underscore Salmon. Uh, Alex, really appreciate you joining us here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Brad. You bet. Okay, we got to get out. I yes. am running late. Sorry, Des. No worries. But thank you, our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com, a service made, th- made uh, possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We are 100% listener supported. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me snarking out at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>